0: As we begin today, I'm going to put someone's picture on the screen that I'm sure has become a household name and a household figure across the world. Imagine a month ago, most of us didn't have too much of an idea of who he was, but as the Russian troops poured into Ukraine, President Zelensky has become front and center as he's implored the West to come and help his cause. And one of the appeals that he has made is he's invited foreign fighters to go and fight in Ukraine on behalf of U- the Ukrainian government. And people have enlisted. People across the world have said, I will sign up to go and fight in a foreign land. In spite of the fact that some of their governments have said, don't do this. We can't support you over there. We won't protect you. Some have chosen to go instead of that. And you can wonder, what, what is the appeal to go and fight in a foreign land? To perhaps even die in that land and never return the land of your birth? There's a couple of things. One, Zelensky himself is a very persuasive person. When he was offered an escape route, he said, I'm not, going, I'm not taking the helicopter ride out. I want to stay and fight. And nothing like a leader who's a follower of their own cause inspires others to also jump in. There's also the sense of the injustice, of here's a weaker, smaller nation being attacked by another one, an aggressor. So you have the natural justice kind of rising up within us. You also have this symbolic piece that's there. Here's a democracy being taken over by an autocracy. And I think there's a question for us. What, what will be the government of the future? Will it be autocracy or will it be democracy? And those of us who love democracy want to fight on behalf of freedom. And so Zelensky's appeal has met with widespread response in his country and across the globe. But today I want to talk about more than just an invitation to go and fight. Because we have more... just an invitation. As Christians, we have a commission. We actually have marching orders, and they don't just come from a president who could be elected out of office at the next term. For as well as Churchill did in leading Britain to victory in World War II, his party was voted out the very next election cycle. We have someone who is Lord of heaven and earth calling us to this commission, giving us The charge, and we fight not with weapons of this world. Christ, in his trial, said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would be fighting. We are called into a different kind of kingdom march. Not ones with missiles and rifles, but ones with words. Ones to proclaim the good news that there is a king who is king over heaven and earth, king over life and death itself. He's not just willing to go and risk death like Zelensky is he has actually conquered death already that is the one that has now commissioned us to a task before us so why are we talking about this today well let me give you a sketch of where we've been so if you're joining us for the first time glad to have you here let me just give you an idea of where our church has been in the past year we started a thing we call pbj which stands for pray bless jesus and we've been inviting people to pray once a day That the Lord would open up an opportunity for you to love others with Christ's love. Then, walk into that. Do something tangible to bless others in your world. And we gave the acronym of BAGELS. Bless, affirm, gifts, eat, listen, and then, yes, serve. Those are the tangible ways we can then love others. There's other ways of doing it? That's fine. But we're inviting you at least once a week finding ways to love others in your world, And then, bring in the J part. Now, J is is complex, so we've been talking the last two weeks. Taylor preached a sermon on making Christ the center of your life. That's very important, because what I'm about to call you to today requires that Christ become a key part of your life. If he's not central to your life, you're not going to want to follow about this commission. Last week, Dan talked about loving others as Christ loved us putting our lives on the line and that's very important too because if love does not motivate us when people hear us talking about this good news it's going to feel like we're they're our project and this great commission can become a manipulation so we feel good about ourselves but this is a commission to talk about jesus to to talk about who he is with those around us and so in our time today we're going to talk about what does it look like to share jesus with others So when you're in these relationships, you've been praying, and God brings someone to you, and then you've been investing in that relationship through blessing them, what do you do with it now? How do you then talk about Jesus in the midst of that? That's our topic today. We're going to cover two things. First of all, what is the Great Commission? What did Christ give his church to do? And then second, I want to talk about the hurdles. What keeps us from living out the Great Commission in our lives? So that's where we're going to go today. Let's begin by looking at the passage. And this comes at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has already done his teaching. He's died and resurrected, and now he's going to lead the disciples, and he gives them this commission. And notice what he says here. He says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This commission comes not from... Someone we can appeal to. Maybe we we can't go and appeal to the Supreme Court to say, that doesn't really apply to me. No, this is the one who has all authority. There's, There's no other one to appeal to. And this is the commission that we would then follow his teachings, that we would follow and pass on what he has taught his disciples. So this is the one with all authority giving this commission. And what is this commission? Verses 19 and 20 Are the core of this. It says, "Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you." I want to unpack this because we we can read this, and in English it it reads a certain way, but in in Greek, there's a way of writing verbal verbs that emphasize one piece over others, and that's what you have going on here. The main verb, the main command, is this make disciples. Everything else in Greek is a participle. We'll talk about that. But a participle is a a secondary form of a verbal idea. They all get their meaning from the main force. But the main force here, the main command, is make disciples. And not just of the people you like people who are like you, but of all nations. This this is to be a worldwide movement, that God's going to make disciples of everybody. That the church has a global focus in its purview. What does it mean to make a disciple? A disciple is one who learns from someone else. And so all throughout the gospel, Jesus has been making disciples. He's been calling people to follow him. They've left their occupations, and they've formed their ways of life around him. And so all throughout the gospel, we've seen this happening as as Peter has gone from being this fisherman that is fearful of others to to now being, as we'll see if you look in the book of Acts, he becomes a bold proclaimer of the gospel, of the good news of who Jesus Christ is. And so Christ has called them out, formed them with his teaching. They've adopted his way of life. And he's set them now onto the task of making more disciples so how are we supposed to do this well this is where the other verbal ideas come into play and there's three there's going there's baptizing and then there's teaching so the first one is going how do we go about making disciples one is to go we might immediately think of going to other nations and there is a part of that, that there is a going across the oceans But going doesn't have to be international. Even in suburbia, it could be going across the street. To the neighbor, that's easy just to, to avoid, or you watch their garage door go up and down. It might be that neighbor. Or it might be walking across the hallway at school to the other side of the lockers. Going is simply going somewhere you haven't been already, reaching out in a way you haven't currently done. And if we're not going we're likely not making new disciples. It's easy to sit here in our huddle on Sunday morning and enjoy this. This is good. But part of the command is to go. And that requires a step, often outside of our comfort zones. So the first part here is to go. That's one way we do the how of making disciples. The second part is to baptize. Now, in our world, baptism can seem pretty cheap and easy. Like It doesn't cost us much to have our kids baptized or to come forward and be baptized. But there are parts of the world where baptism will cost you something. It'll cost you relationships. It might cost you your life. And here's why. Because baptism is coming forward and saying to others, I have chosen to follow the rabbi from Nazareth. I want to make Jesus the one who shapes my life. And there are others who oppose that. And so it can be a costly thing to come and say, yes, I'm going to mark myself as a follower of Christ for all to see. And if you have not been baptized, I encourage you to pursue, talk to Dan or talk to me. This is a mark of obedience, of following our Savior, saying, if you you have said, I want to follow Jesus, then another part of that is to come forward and to say, I want to sign up. I want others to know that I follow this guy, this guy is my Savior, Jesus is my King. And so part of the going is to baptize. Now notice, whose name do we baptize in? The name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. This is a Trinitarian baptism. Now if you go on the internet and look around, talk about the words Trinity, you'll see that some people will say, well, the Trinity is this late creation of the church they make this they try to figure it out and they oppose it upon the scriptures and i think it's a very critical unsympathetic look at the development of trinitarian doctrine i think a better way of explaining is to say the early church wrestled for a long time with passages like this why do we see father son and spirit distinct yet one name how do we make sense of this 3 in oneness that they find in scripture and it took them a while to, to find the language that could actually bear the weight of that And that's where the Trinitarian thought comes from. It's not a late creation. It's just trying to figure out how do we express what we find here in passages like this. It's Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's whose name we baptize in. Then finally, the last how of of how we go about making disciples is that we teach them. And what do we teach? Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, at this point in the book of Matthew, he's done a lot of teaching. So if you have a red-letter Bible, I encourage you just to flip through Matthew and just look. What happens in Matthew is you'll have these narrative sections where Jesus goes and heals people, and then he stops and he teaches. So you'll have, like, pages that are just bright red if you have a red-letter Bible. And then I'll go back to the, the black script where he's, again, teaching, healing, doing other things. What's in there? Yeah, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says things like this. Bless those who curse you. Love your enemies. Don't sit in the seat of judgment, but inspect the fruits. There's a robust way of living life that Jesus has articulated, and he says, when you go out and make disciples, don't make them like you, but make them like me, what I've taught you to be. That is the teaching. That's the content. And so Jesus now invites his disciples to be passing this on. And that's why at North Park Church, we value things like Sunday school. We value things like Sunday morning service where we expound upon God's word because part of what we want to be doing is understanding what is this life that Christ wants us to live? What does it look like? How do we have good conversations? How do we understand the commands that Jesus gives in Luke? How does he eat with the people in his world? And so our Sunday school classes for adults and for kids we're trying to get at how do we pass on this teaching that we have received about who Jesus is when what he's called us to be. Now this is a daunting task. It's not easy to go. It's not easy sometimes to invite people to take a step like baptism that's public. It's easy to be a covert follower of Jesus. It's another to come forward and say, yes, I'm signing up to follow him. Right after this, Jesus has a promise. And he says this, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is with us. He doesn't send us out and be like, Hey, there's a mountain. Go climb that. I'm going to go get coffee over here. No, he's he's with us. He's with us in this. He doesn't send us out as orphans. No, he's with us in this process. And this is such a precious promise. Last fall, as I was praying about PBJ, God brought something to mind that's been in my head for a long time to do. And God said, pretty much in prayer, this is time to do it. And I was like, okay. And here's what it was. I have connections at La Roche University, and I've been thinking for a long time it'd be great to have a series of lunches where I address all the questions people usually ask about the faith. To say, hey, come at me. Like, let's let's have that conversation. And so I did all the background work. I went to the priest who oversees the student ministry, and I said, hey, can I do these lunches? And he said, great. He offered me marketing. He said, I'll put up all the posters. I'll distribute emails. So I had everything at my fingertips. I was like, this is awesome. So I did all that work, got the posters up, got the emails out. And then that first day came. And I had a little sign, and I told everybody where I was going to be in the cafeteria. I remember walking in, and I had to pluck up my courage, right? <sighs> what if no one shows up? Like, that's the haunting feeling. And so I got, went in, got lunch. I was a little early, so it's like, no one's there yet. It's okay. It's okay. I, I, Got my lunch, I sat down, put my sign up, and and kind of waiting, like, is anybody going to come? Five minutes go by, it's like, okay, now it's it's just time, it's okay, college students are late. Five more minutes go by, they're walking past me, it's like, "Uh yeah, I'm that old dude sitting over there in a corner with a sign about religion. How awkward is that? I I could handle it for about the first five, ten minutes, and then it was like, the awkwardness started growing. 15 minutes in, now it's half an hour, and I'm like, hey, Lord, this is like, this is not what I wanted. That's not what I thought. And God let me sit there. He let me sit there for a long time. Now, I'm an introvert, and that was really awkward. (laughs) The whole time, I'm like, Lord, I did everything that I think I'm supposed to do. I've been praying a lot, and I kept praying while I was there. But this promise that God is with us, that's what i had because that moment was extremely awkward i don't want to go through it again so i as you hear this sermon today just understand i know some of you think oh pastor ben it must be easy for you it is not that was like torture for me for 45 minutes now i'm going to stop the story right there and come back later to it because part two but i want to emphasize this that first part those 45 minutes were extreme i would not want to repeat them again God had a gift for me. But even if he didn't, he was still there with me. And at some point, I got to this place of peace of like, well, Lord, it's in your hands. This is, this is your work. And if you choose to have me sit here, this awkward, you know, adult in a bunch of, among a bunch of college students, and then that, that's what you wanted. And so that's where I ended up psychologically and spiritually being for that last part. So we'll come back to that. i got more to talk about that story. But this promise that God will be with us is comforting. Because there will be moments when it's lonely, when it feels futile, when you're rejected, when you feel like giving up. And to know that he is with you, that is a precious promise. He is with us. So that's the commission. And I imagine from a lot of you, that's not the first time you've heard that. We, we've known it. And yet, I would say for us to live into it, there's quite a few of us still standing on the sidelines there's a lot that keeps us from living into the fullness of what this commission could be for our lives and why is that i want to talk now about the hurdles that we face and these aren't all of them this is not exhaustive but these are some of the hurdles that we faced in living out the great commission i'm going to talk about external hurdles and then internal ones because there's ones out there and there's ones in here and we've got to face them both so the first external hurdle that some people have Is that they just don't have non-christian friends so they show up at a sermon like this and they think okay the pastor's telling me to go out and talk about my faith uh i don't have any people who's not a christian i don't have any friends who aren't christians they're all right here and the stats show according to barna and i'm going to be citing a lot of information from barna that does a lot of good research two books here reviving evangelism and then spiritual conversations in the digital age so you'll see them at the, at the bottom there. These are the books that I'm citing. And they say that two out of five Christians would say they have no non-Christian friends. So think about that. When you're invited to go share your faith with somebody, for 40% of Christians, that means that person is going to be a cold turkey conversation. And that's hard. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Most folks prefer to share the faith and talk about faith with a friend. So when you're having a, when it's a non-friend, now that awkwardness that that hurdle just got a lot higher. So that might be one hurdle people face. Another one is that people tend to think that they're fine. We live in a very well-to-do area. People have nice manicured lawns. They've got jobs, and so you start thinking, "Well, what's the what's the way in? Like, how do how do I know people actually need Jesus, and do they even feel it?" What's the starting point out of this conversation? And it's a great question. We all f- confront this, especially in our area, where the, the needs aren't as palpable or as apparent. And here would be my encouragement. Stay with someone long enough. If you listen well, that's why we've been having classes on listening, people will start to give you a bit more of a look under the hood of what's really going on. And at some point... Christians and non-Christians, we reach this point where we realize like our learning and our knowledge just doesn't quite get us over the hump. We can't quite figure out this next piece of life. How do I deal with this loss or this change or my kids changing in their in their grades or even going off to college? How how do I get to this to this next stage? It's in those moments that I think if we're patient and, and wait and love people, really love them, they'll let us see the places where they're struggling and give us and insight. And those are the moments where I think, don't just jump in like vultures and like, wow, do you need Jesus? But simply ask some questions. I remember one from Scott Barber that that I've held on to. And Scott, when he was counseling a a woman who came to this point in in the conversation where it was clear that she was stuck, but he realized faith might actually help her here, he just said this. He said, you know, this is a point at which I think your faith might help you. And then he moved into a teaching time of saying, hey, here's how faith in this moment of your need might actually be the bridge to the next stage. Gentle, but easy to point in, easy to bring in and say, here's how faith might help you. gives you an opportunity to share a little bit of how your faith helps you overcome those hurdles. Another story I heard yesterday was very, very interesting. People might project being fine, But there might be more curiosity going on. So we've been doing Alpha for the past seven weeks. We had six Thursday nights where we met. And this one lady in our group was going back to her work afterwards and talking about Alpha. And the first time she mentioned to this junior colleague about Alpha, this person just said, I don't care about that stuff. Well, week two, week three came by, kept talking about Alpha. And by the end of Alpha, this person was coming by her cubicle or her little station on friday saying what'd you guys talk about last night and then this week we had a whole saturday devoted to the holy spirit and how he leads us and so the person came by and what are you talking about on saturday and she said well we're talking about how the holy spirit leads us and this person no joke who was before now said well that'd be a really interesting conversation so suddenly just continually to, to here's who i am this person now is curious about what she's talking about in Alpha the night before. Or we'll be talking about Alpha on the weekend coming up. So people might project that they're fine. Be their friend. Love them. At some point, we all reach these places where we were deficient. And that's the place to say, here's where I think faith in Christ might help you. That was not supposed to have that same picture. But anyway... Um, Another one is that people's perceptions of the faith outside. So you have people who have negative perceptions of what it means to be a Christian or a faith in general. And I'll be honest, the past couple election cycles, um, the word evangelical has become more known for its political leanings than it has for its proclamation of Jesus Christ as king over life and death. And so that's a, that's a hard one. And that's, that's an external one. We can obviously continue to live as authentic followers of Christ, but that, that's a hard one that you have to overcome. But it's not overcome, not unovercomable. A few weeks ago I was talking to my dad, and he's been, I would say, fathering a, a man in his thirties at his work, kind of being a, a father figure to him. And this young man was going to church for a while, then all of a sudden just stopped going to church. Well, a girlfriend had entered his life, and my dad would ask, like, hey, what stopped you from coming to church? And he said, well, my girlfriend. She doesn't want to go. So my dad has kept this conversation alive, and a few weeks ago, he reiterated, hey, you should come to church again. We'd We'd like to have you around. And he said, you know, I've always said it's her fault that we're not back. It's actually my fault. And then he said, why? He said, you know, I'm working at this place, and he works at the place with my dad. There's a lot of Christians there. He said, I can't handle the hypocrisy that I see. There's a lot of Christians there. They go and they lead worship at their churches. They give a lot to missions. But how they treat their customers and their clients is very underhanded, and all the employees see it. And he says, I can't handle the hypocrisy anymore. But this person had cracked a little bit. He still wanted something. He wasn't ready to go back to church yet, but he said, you know what? I would enjoy a Bible study. So what he did is he went around the, off, went around the workplace, got other young men who would be interested in a, in a Bible study, and told my dad, hey, can you lead this? And so here you have someone who's you're, you're, he's convinced that there's hypocrisy out there, and there is. But living as an authentic follower of Christ doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it means that we've experienced forgiveness and knowing that our own hypocrisies, they're, they're there. And there might be a, come a time for this, for this young man to realize as he walks in the church, you know what, I'm a hypocrite too, but Christ and his forgiveness covers all of that. And so in this young man's life, he's at least taking the next step, seeing that there are authentic followers of Christ reaching out to them, wanting to learn from them, who is this Jesus guy? And then the last hurdle that I'm going to talk about, that's an external one, are cultural barriers. This is taken from the Joshua Project, which is an online website that documents the spread of the gospel. And they estimate that there is a total of 17,440 people groups across the world. And that's dependent upon language, cultural barriers, and things like that. So basically, these distinct people groups would need a missionary and a church in their community, in their people group, to evangelize them or to at least share the gospel. And of those people groups there are 7000 plus that are still unreached that means that there are 7000 people groups that have yet to have a prevalent gospel witness that it's effectively loud enough and I shouldn't say loud enough but effective at making sure the gospel could reach every person in that people group a 7000 that's still out there so when we talk about going and making disciples of all nations that task is still out there and that's why we support missions Part of our work with Edu Nations, Edu Nations, where we support in Sierra Leone, two of those villages that they are reaching are actually among the unreached people groups. They're bringing Christian education to those same places. And so part of that is to send people. And so when we take vows of baptism in North Park Church, one of the things we say is that we will not stand in the way of our kids being called in the Christian ministry. And I realize that messes up your grandparenting plans. And it might mess up mine for all I know, but. Part of the task of commissioning or living out this great commission is to say, yes, Lord, some of us will go. And it's been a great pleasure to see people from our own ranks rise up and say, I will go to foreign lands to serve the cross, to tell them about Jesus. So we've seen the external hurdles that are out there. There's Some of us have no non-Christian friends. People think they're fine. People perceive the faith perhaps as a toxic thing or perhaps as a negative thing. There's cultural barriers that Take work to get across. You have to learn a language. You have to move to a different place sometimes. These take work to overcome. But the problems aren't just out there, they're also in here. So, the internal hurdles, for instance, are our self perception. I guarantee you, some of you are sitting there right now thinking, this is all a really nice preacher, but I'm not that person. I'm an introvert, I'm shy. This commission wasn't written, hey, this is the commission to the extroverts, or this is the commission to those who are really gifted in evangelism. This is the commission to the church, to the disciples, make more disciples, to be involved in that. And so, yes, I understand it's hard, and, and I would completely align myself with those who are introverts and shy. That's me. I'm not off the hook. And I'm going to suggest this, that it's actually worth it. So I know some of us, when we, when we When you're hearing me right now, you're probably thinking, this is terrifying, this is scary. It might be. But listen to this. This is is comforting. When Christians engage in spiritual conversations, and even when non-Christians do, here's how they experience it. 71% of Christians experience peace. That's three out of four. 59% report laughing. 55% experience joy. And only 11% feel stressed think about that. If three out of four times you're going to feel peace, and only one out of ten you're going to feel stress, it seems to me that it's more likely you're going to feel peace, joy, and laugh. How do non-Christians experience this? Notice this, 40% experience peace too. This is a non-Christian experience of having a spiritual conversation. 53% report laughing. Just, as, just about as many non-Christians laugh as Christians laugh. But there can be this enjoyable experience that's fun and engaging and real that both sides experience that way. Imagine that. Now, I know a lot of us are worried about the person on the other side experiencing stress and annoyance. They do report, non-Christians do report, higher levels of stress and annoyance. But get this, there are less than feelings of peace and laughter. So only 18% report stress, only 27% report annoyance. Again, more likely to have a positive psychological experience, an emotional experience, than we are a negative one. And so will you let your self-perception keep you from experiences of joy and peace? I encourage you to think about what you have to gain if you step out. Another one is that we fear re- rejection. We fear losing relationships. of Christians admit they would avoid a spiritual conversation if it meant the person would reject them. I understand that. We don't like to be alone. We don't like to be pushed out. And I'm not asking you to be overly aggressive. Just bring this up in your conversation. But here's the deal. Christians and non-Christians alike prefer to have a spiritual conversation with a friend. So if you're in a position where you're feeling this person might just reject me you're probably having a deep enough relationship that you're the person they want to talk to. So check this out. 61% of practicing Christians prefer a friend as the person they would most want to talk about the faith with. 55% of non-practicing Christians choose the friend as well. And 55% of non-Christians. So think about that. More than half of people would choose to talk to a friend. So if you're in a relationship and you're feeling, man, I might be rejected, guess what? That person also would probably choose you as their conversation partner. Will you put that off? That very relationship that you want to save is also the very context in which they're most likely to talk to you about the faith. There's also the fear of a difficult question. Some of us think, if we bring up the faith, start talking about Jesus, man, I'm going to get pounced on. I'm going to have to answer the problem of evil and blah, blah, blah. Here's the deal. You probably won't. That's one of our fears that we think is there. But here's the deal. Only 7% of non-Christians wanted to talk with someone who has all the answers about faith. So many Christians feel this pressure to be the Bible answer man or a walking Bible encyclopedia. That's like, I'm not going to talk about it because, man, I'm just going to get rapid fire questions. Only 7% want that in a conversation partner. Only 15% want someone who's good at debating. We often feel like, I've got to be, you know, good point and counterpoint, good lawyer. No, actually not. The highest, by far, what people want is this. 62% wanted someone to listen to them without judgment. Just to listen. That's not quickly having a retort that's not answering a good question right away. That's just simply, I'm going to listen and understand you. And then, note this, only 34% of non-Christians know a Christian like this. That's the sad part. Sixty-some percent want that, only 30-some percent know that. There's room for us to grow, I think, as a Christian community, of how we engage non-Christian neighbors and friends and co-workers Can we sit and listen? Sometimes we're very quick to, like, oh, there it is, boom, I'm gonna jump in and score my point. What if we just listened? We might get further traction. And so you might feel inept. You might feel like, I don't have all the answers. That's okay. Can you listen? Can you ask a question and pay attention to what's going on? That's what people are looking for. And then finally, there's the question of, I'm not prepared. This is difficult. It's not easy. So think about those of you who have ever played a viol- like a, a, an instrument of some sort. Has anyone here ever played an instrument? How many of you have done that? Quite a few. How did it feel that first time? Second time? Third time? Were you amazing? Did you sit down here like broken, and like, oh yeah, so you just, just the music just flows out of you? Yeah, you're laughing. No, it doesn't. It, it takes practice. It takes work. These things are not immediate. They require us to, to try it again and again. And so you might have in your history, oh, I did this one time, and man, it just went south fast. Okay, this is going to be a skill that it, where it flows out of you in a way that's just natural to who you are and easy. And so it's going to take some time. And one of my favorite quotes is, is from G.K. Chesterton, where he says this, if a thing is worth doing, it is worth doing poorly. You know, I've always heard the other side, like you gotta, gotta do it to perfection. Well, he makes his point that if you're gonna learn anything, you're gonna perfect a skill, you're gonna have to start off at this like baby step thing. It's gonna be laborious. And it's gonna be difficult. It's gonna be hard. The same thing with sharing our faith. You might not have the words. Guess what? You probably don't. And so if you're in here, what I would encourage you to do is start working on the process of articulating this. Now on June 5th, which is the first summer sunday after memorial day we 're going to have a training on a simple method to share your faith so i 'd encourage you to step, stay after the service on that day we 're going to give you a little tool and that you can easily jump into any conversation it 's quick and easy it 's brilliant and it helps you talk about your faith in a very simple way that 's understandable to others so I encourage you to join us we want and we 'll practice it we 're not just going to talk about it we 're going to actually do it because the more you do this, the easier this is it's, it becomes a muscle it becomes a something that you remember and you can do easily enough. So here's what I want you to do right now. Inside your bulletin, open up your bulletin on the left side, middle, there should be a list of seven things. And these aren't a spectrum, but they are different stages, perhaps, of comfortability regarding talking about your faith. I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Look over those and circle the one that you think you're at where do you find yourself today when you talk when you think about sharing Jesus with someone else if you don't have your bulletin in front of you we have them on the screen right here take some time just to identify where would you put yourself give you another five seconds look through those and and pick one doesn't have to be exact but if you can say this resonates with where i'm at so let's look over these together so number one the person doesn't talk about the faith with anybody else here's here's my words and encouragement to you if you find yourself there today stay with that why that is what what keeps you from sharing your faith is there more to it? Is, are there doubts there? Is there a negative experience in the past? Is there fear of rejection? And here's what I encourage you to do find someone who knows you well and, and just start teasing this out. What's in there? What keeps you back? And if you want to come talk with me, I'd love to help kind of comp- just understand what is motivating here. What, what's the shackles? What are the shackles that keep you from living into this fully? Number two, for those who are open to talking about the faith but don't have non-Christian friends, I encourage you to spend more time in the pray and the blessed part of PBJ. Part of that is just saying, Lord, who's, who's in my life? Who should I invest in? And then the idea behind the blessing strategy is simply, how do I tangibly build a relationship with others? One of the things that we have lost in American culture, and the pandemic just made it worse, is that our abilities to relate to others have atrophied. I read one report that over the pandemic... We basically traded an hour of interaction a day with other people to an hour of interaction with our screens. And so our relational capacities are shrinking and dwindling, and blessing is simply, how do I relate to somebody? How do I actually care about them? So I would encourage you, if you're number two, focus on the bagel side. Number three, you're open, but concerned about how it will go. I might just encourage you to tiptoe. So Some of you are hearing me today like thinking, I've got to be a used car salesman. You just ratchet up the pressure. You're like, if you don't buy it today, this, this car's never going to be here. No one enjoys being that person. So just tiptoe in and say, hey, I'm curious. You know, we've had a deep friendship. I'm curious, what do you believe about the world? How did we get here? What? I just want to know. Just tiptoe into that. Let, let it transpire and see what happens. Just baby steps. You don't have to jump right into it, but just take small, gentle steps that you can take. Um, number four, you're open, but not sure what to say or do. This is where I think training would help. So come to June 5th, and if you're not able to make that, come find another time. We will have other trainings where we are equipping us, ourselves, and our church to do this, to have it flow out of us naturally. So it's not laborious. It's not a struggle. Um, number five, you don't have time. And here's might be... Two two different sides. One, you could either try to fit this into what you're already doing. So maybe you're a soccer mom driving kids around, well, how can you drive the neighbor's kids with you? And could you reach out to the neighbor kids? So you can try to fit it into what you're already doing that's busy. Or maybe ask this question, what can you give up? What needs to end so you can create space to love others? On number six, you enjoy doing this, but perhaps this is awkward, it feels uncomfortable. Again, the practice, the practice metaphor here, you'll have to keep practicing it and perhaps try it today at lunch with your family. Talk about your testimony. How would you share your faith? How would you, what, what do you believe? What would be the core elements of that? So practice might be something I would recommend for someone, someone at number six. If you're at number seven, you say, I talk about my faith. I find it enjoyable. It's easy. Great. Encourage others. Tell your stories. Inspire us. And then come alongside wherever they are and celebrate the triumphs. People are going to, people unfortunately grade themselves by the experts that they see. And if you can come alongside and say, you're following Jesus, you're being faithful here, that will be wind in their sails. So come alongside and encourage them. And so we're all in different places. And I encourage you today, wherever you are, try to take the next step. What's the next step look like for you? Some of you have been content to be on the sidelines. But I'll say this you might be sacrificing joy, peace, and seeing God at work. Let's go back to that story where I was awkwardly sitting at a lunch table at La Roche. It, it went on the whole lunchtime that I had blocked out. So no one came to see me sitting there. And so I decided, you know what, Lord, I'm here. I want to try to meet students. So I would walk around and say, Hey, I'm, I'm Ben. I'm here for this. Most of them had nothing to do with me. But there was one student right in front of me that I went and talked to, and his name was Thomas. And he said, Hey, what is this thing? And I said, Well, you know, I'm, I'm here for a lunch conversation. He said, Well, is it about religion? And of course, I'm not sure if it's a positive thing or a negative thing. So I sheepishly at this point was like, Yeah. He said, oh, good. I've got a lot of questions about religion and i want to sort them out before i graduate in december are you here next week and i was like yes i'm here next week He said, good i have a project i'm working on right now can't do it now but can we meet next monday and i said yes and so next monday sure enough he came armed with his questions and it was a tirade (laughs) yes i invited it so that that was partly my my invitation so i got a lot of his questions one of them was this he couldn't figure out the book of job he says if God is this great, why did God let Job suffer and then never tell him why? And I remember sitting there thinking, Lord, I have, I've got no rejoinder to this. I can explain the book of Job, but he has a point. You didn't say a whole lot. You just said, hey, Job, I made everything. I know where the snow comes from. <laughs> you give no explanation. So I sat and held that question. We met three different times. The last conversation was very, very interesting. We got to this point, we were talking about Pascal's wager, and he was like, you know, I get Pascal's wager, but it seems like if you're going to have faith, it should be because you actually believe. Not because you think you're going to get a better deal or you're going to get some heavenly reward, but you should really believe it for its own sake. And, And suddenly at that moment, I think it was a Holy Spirit moment, where God brought that conversation about Job back into the picture. And I said, you know what? This is what the book of Job's about. It's about saying, Job, are you going to serve God for God's sake? Or is it because you have your kids, your donkeys, your camels, and all this stuff? Is that why you serve God? And he sat back and was like, I like that. <laughs> and I remember the smile coming across his face. And that was our last conversation together. Now, go back to that awkward 45 minutes, an hour I spent waiting there at that table. Was it worth it? Yeah. But when we live that again, not necessarily. But the joy and the peace that we both had as we left that room that day, that was amazing. And so some of you are sitting on the sidelines. You're, you can root for others, you can encourage others, you support them, but you haven't done it yourself. Now, you think about any football game, there's 11 guys on the field doing all the work. There's a lot of coaches, there's physical trainers, there's doctors, there's fans in the stands. Can you imagine what would happen if the rules changed and more than 11 guys got on the field, if suddenly everybody lined up? Let's say the next Steeler home game. The 11 guys go out, and then the coaches, then the trainers, then the fans, and they just started marching. There is no team that could stand on the other side of the ball and keep it away. Filling the whole side, that line of scrimmage is going to move. And you, can, you don't even need a new quarterback on our side of the ball. You can just hand it off to somebody and just keep walking because the, as a mass together, it'd be unstoppable. So you think about a church our size. It might seem like a small thing, but imagine an invitation to VBS or to Alpha or to read the Gospel of Luke with some, your neighbor. If we were to do that once a year, that's 250 of us do that for 10 years, that's 2,500. Together, we're faithful living out this commission. It's powerful. It's an invitation to follow the king of the world who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Will you stay on the sidelines, or will you join? I encourage you to join and see the peace, the joy, the happiness, the laughter that comes as a part of it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have called us to be a part of this commission, to welcome others to be baptized, to follow in the teachings of Christ. And Lord, as people hear this in different places today, some perhaps on the outside looking in, perhaps some skeptical of whether that they can actually do this, Lord, I pray that you would empower each person where they are, encourage them. Show them that you have equipped them for all good work. In your son's name, amen.